Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We do believe the Lord still speaks, and he does so through his word, and so I invite you to take your Bibles and be finding Isaiah chapter 43. If you don't have one with you, the uh, scripture will be up on the screen here in a few moments when I get ready to read it. But we are continuing our series through the book of Isaiah, not verse by verse, but taking different sections of this uh, prophet's letter. You know, one crime that our ancestors never had to worry about and yet we are susceptible to it every single day, is what is called identity theft. I mean, we love the advancements that we enjoy from technology, but with those advancements come problems like identity theft, opportunities for people who want to deceive and steal what is ours. And so we know that we are just one click away from someone getting our vital information and using it for their own benefit. If they can get our social security number and our credit card numbers, they can, in essence, financially become us and rack up debt in our name. And then we will be forced to prove that we did not purchase the items that are now in our name and spend countless hours on the phone trying to get our credit report corrected. I've had my credit card used illegally multiple times through the years, but I've never faced identity theft, and I hope you haven't either. But it is such a danger, and the subsequent hassles that go with it, that we must always be on guard against it. So some people purchase software for their devices that will help prevent this. Others pay a monthly fee to some company who monitors their information and is on top of it if something happens and promises to fight for them. At the very least, we're all careful, at least I hope we are, in not clicking on things that we don't know where they're coming from, so we don't inadvertently go to some link that is going to get our information. And we certainly know not to provide our financial information or personal information to websites that we're not familiar with. Now, as you might have guessed, this is not a seminar on how to avoid identity theft. Now, that would be some good information, but not appropriate for a Sunday morning worship service. My topic, however, is similar and yet much more significant and even dangerous. I am going to contend this morning that it is possible for us to have our spiritual identity stolen, and when it happens, it is an inside job. By that I mean that we are the ones who allow it to happen, and thus we are the ones who must fight to get it back. Now, we would be quick to proclaim that when our identity might be stolen, it is likely to be on the basis of circumstances, and I will acknowledge that circumstances do play a part. That is usually when our spiritual identity is taken from us, It is after we have gone through some trial, perhaps even a series of difficulties, and through them we begin to lose our faith. Part of losing our faith is believing wrong things about God, and therefore who we are in Christ. And when we forget who we are in Christ, 
Our identity has been stolen, at least in our minds, and the consequences will spread to every other area of our lives. And so there is another way as well for our spiritual identity to be stolen, and that is believing that some other identity is more important than your identity in Christ. And we're seeing that in widespread forms in our culture, that our identity at its core has become something else other than who we are in Jesus. And so this is rampant, and it is people who are desperately searching for their inner self and coming to some very strange conclusions. And so this morning from Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 7, we are going to be talking about spiritual identity theft. And I'm not going to be taking the time, other than what I've already said, I'm not going to take the time to talk about how this occurs. I've just mentioned that. Rather, I'm simply going to be reminding us of who we are in our relationship with God. And in the process of seeing your identity in Christ, you may come to understand that you've allowed your identity to be stolen. You've believed a different and false narrative. You've begun to doubt who you are in Christ, and therefore you need to fight to get that back. And so my hope is that you might recognize this morning that identity theft has occurred, and you can rightly return to who you are. Now, I also need you to know, before we go any further, that everything I'm going to say this morning is true of every single genuine believer, which means it is not true about those who are not in Christ. So you have to take the first step of trusting by faith and repenting of your sins that Jesus is your Savior and Lord. You have to take that step before you have the identity in Christ that we're going to be talking about this morning. So if you don't have this identity, you've got to take that step, and then you can have everything that I'm going to be talking about along with every other believer here this morning. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 43, where we are going to see some of the sweetest words that Isaiah has uttered. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in exchange, or in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west, I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now, if you've been with us, I remind you that our setting in Isaiah 53 is the same thing we've seen the last couple of weeks. 
And that is Isaiah is predicting, he is talking forward about a time that he's not going to live to see when the people are in captivity in Babylon. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple has been demolished. They've been deported to this other civilization. And therefore, they have become desperate. They are in despair. And Isaiah is talking to them in the future about this time. And he knows that their identity is at stake. That is, they are beginning to wonder about who they are. After all they've been through, remember, they're the proud descendants of Abraham. They are the very chosen people of God. And yet they're beginning to wonder, because of all they've been through, do they still have this special relationship with God? After all God has allowed, after all God has done against them, is he still their God? Are they still close to him? Or, all, or are those days gone for good? Again, those are some of the same questions and doubts we have during our times of difficulties. Times when we walk away from God, times when we wonder whether God is still around us, times when we wonder why God is allowing something, and then we begin to entertain wrong thoughts about who God is as a result, and those wrong thoughts lead to wrong thoughts about our relationship with Him. So the first thing we notice concerning our true identity is this, you received grace now, while you recognize that that's true, you might be scratching your heads and thinking to yourself, well, where does he find that in this text? I don't see the word grace there, and it's not there. I don't see any word that would even be remotely synonymous with grace. So why does he say that we've received grace, and why does he start with those words? Well, it's actually right there. You just didn't notice it. It's the first two words of verse 1 where he says, but now. You say, well, how's that grace? Well, if you still got your Bibles open, look back at the previous chapter, the last two verses, where God says that he gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers. Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, in whose laws they would not obey? So he poured out on them the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. That's the judgment that we've seen oftentimes in Isaiah. And you notice there the imagery, the fire that burns them up. But then what I just read in chapter 43, they're going to be able to walk through fire and yet not be burned. So how is it that so much has changed? What has changed from the last two verses of, of chapter 42 to what we've just read, these sweet assurances of chapter 43. Well, you say, maybe the people have repented of their sin, and now they are faithfully following the Lord. And yet there is no indication of that. Have they now forsaken all of their idols, turned away from all of their other gods, and now they have recognized Jehovah God as the one true God? Again, there is no indication of that. And that is why this is grace. Because after all of those words of judgment in chapter 42 and previous, chapter 43 opens, but now. Nothing has changed with them. They deserved the judgment of God, and they still deserve the judgment of God. And yet here in the midst of that judgment, 
God is going to declare that he has not changed. And their relationship with him has not changed. They are still the same rebellious people, but he is about to utter some of the sweetest words that you'll find in all of Scripture. I think we sometimes lose our spiritual identity because we assume and expect that God is going to treat us like we deserve. I mean, that's how we treat one another, right? We, we tend to treat people on the basis of what they deserve, and we expect that they're going to treat us in a similar way. And so we naturally translate that to our relationship with God, that he is going to treat us as we deserve. Though we hear about grace, and though we believe it to be a biblical concept, we struggle to truly embrace it because of the way we treat one another. We have a hard time understanding that God treats us differently. Which is why we need to be reminded as a believer that you and I are recipients of God's grace. And by that, I do not mean merely the moment of salvation. Again, we, we tend to think in those terms. For by grace you've been saved. Yeah, I get that part. No, I'm talking about an ongoing, lavishly applied grace of God in our lives on a daily basis. Now, that doesn't mean that we should continue in sin so that grace may abound. Paul addressed that in his book to the Romans. But I say that as a way of reminder so that we can rejoice in the grace that God daily gives us. Who am I? I am someone who have received the grace of God. That's my true identity and yours if you're a believer. The second thing we see in this text is you are redeemed. We see this in verse 1, that God has redeemed us. We see it later with the word ransom in verse 3. And we actually looked at these two words a few weeks ago. And we said that while they're not strictly synonymous, they are very close, very similar in nature. They both have the aspect of someone buying someone back, purchasing the freedom of someone. And then in verses 3 and 4, God speaks of exchanging nations and men for the release of his people. And while some of that's a little bit difficult to understand, the point is very clear. And the point is this, God will go to any length to redeem his people. God loves us so much, as we'll see in a moment, that no cost is too high because his love is so great. Of course, we know that the very heart of this is what it means to be a Christian, that God, at the great cost of the death of his son, did in fact ransom or redeem us from sin. Jesus, paying the penalty that we deserved, satisfying the wrath of God on our behalf, so that we then could be free and forgiven and thus reconciled to God. Drop down to verse 25 of chapter 43, where God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And thus we are reconciled to the very God that we had sinned against, which again is lavish grace. Paul says we've been bought with a price. God purchased us as his own through the death of Jesus. And therefore, for the first of two times in this text, we are told, fear not. Verse 1, fear not. Why? Because I have redeemed you. Again, we talked several weeks ago about these two aspects of fear. 
That is, there is a sense in which we are told that we are to fear the Lord. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that Jesus had a fear of God. That is an awe and reverence. But there is another sense in which we are not to fear anything else but God. And that's the kind of fear we see here. Because we have been redeemed by God, we do not fear his judgment. Because his wrath has been satisfied through his son. And therefore, we have no reason to fear anyone or anything else. We do not have to be afraid in the midst of our circumstances or fearful that God is going to abandon us. Since he has redeemed us, he is not going to let us go. Again, we have the reassuring words of Paul. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? And that's an argument from the greater to the lesser. That is, if God has done the greatest thing possible for us, and that is redeem us from sin, then we can trust he is going to do everything else we need as well. So if God went to all the trouble and all of the cost to redeem us through Jesus' sacrifice and death, we have nothing to fear. We have received grace. We have been redeemed. The third thing we see concerning our identity is you are known. Now we still call Israel God's chosen people for this very reason. God called them to himself and knew them intimately by name. And we see the same thing in the New Testament concerning every believer, that you and I are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. And therefore, we are known by God. Jesus says, my sheep I know, and they know me. Now, I realize that the idea of God's choosing or calling is controversial. I know we have no trouble with it in the Old Testament. We have no qualms about saying Israel is God's chosen people. And we don't even uh, blink an eye at the fact that God says in the Old Testament, I chose you not because you're greater in number, not because you're mightier mightier than the other nations. I chose you simply because I love you. But then when we come to the New Testament, we talk about this idea, we have all kinds of theological discussions. And I understand that, and I don't want to get sidetracked. What I do want you to hear is that this has always been meant to be a comforting and assuring doctrine. That your relationship and mine with God is not a coincidence. It is not something that has happened merely in random or by accident. It has been very purposeful from the very beginning. Now, when I was in school, I don't know if they still do this or not, because I'm sure it hurts feelings. It did then. It would still now. So maybe they, you know, we're too sensitive now. So maybe, maybe they don't do it anymore. But when I was in school and it came time for recess and we were going to play a game, you know how it worked, right? Two people who were leaders, I don't know how they became leaders, but we all knew they were leaders. They, they, they were better at athletics than we were. They became the captains. And the captains captains stood out there, and they began alternating, choosing who was going to be on their team. And the rest of us, I was never a captain, the rest of us stood there waiting on our name to be called. And we hoped that they would choose us early on. We certainly didn't want to be the last one picked. Or worse than that, not picked at all. Well, we've got our teams, you'll have to sit down and wait for the next game. We didn't want that to happen to us. We wanted to be valued. And so when they chose us, we knew that meant that we were valued, that they had, that they saw something in us that they wanted on their team. In fact, if you watch commercials and don't fast forward through them, 
you might realize there's a current commercial that plays off this scenario. Remember Charles Barkley, the big uh, basketball player? The commercial is him with a bunch of little kids. And they're doing this. There's two kids that are captains and they're choosing teams. And, and obviously, the first kid that picks chooses Barkley. And he immediately starts bragging. I knew they would choose me first. Well, that's what used to happen on playgrounds. Now, the illustration that I'm using breaks down at a couple of points. Number one, you're not chosen by God because of any value that he sees in you or because of some intrinsic worth that you can bring his team or his kingdom. And there is certainly no ranking order in this selection process. I bring it up as an illustration to remind you of how you felt when your name was called. When that captain called your name, especially early on, how valued that made you seem. And the Bible tells us that God has called every believer by name. And therefore, we now belong to him. I don't know about you, but I'm not very good with names. I mean, I, I forget, you can introduce me to someone and seconds later, I can't tell you who their name was. I, I lose the names of people that I know well and it's very embarrassing at times because I've known them for years and my mind just goes blank and I cannot remember their names. This is yet another way where we are very much unlike God for he knows our names and he does not forget. And these are such reassuring words in the midst of a world of break, broken relationships where whether or not you ever become famous or thousands of people ever know your name or you gather a bunch of followers on whatever social media you're on, even if none of that ever happens, we are assured that the creator of this universe knows us by name. You are known. The second part of our, the next part of our identity, the fourth part, is that you have him. Twice in this text, we are assured of God's presence. In fact, this is probably the most important of all of these spiritual identity markers, because if we don't have this, we're certainly going to doubt all of the others. But if we have this, we can be assured of all of the others, that God is with us. In verse 2, if we pass through the waters, he is there with us. This entire verse pictures the trials and difficulties that all of us are going to pass through. Again, they, they have not been, they are not going to defeat us, they are not going to uh, overcome us because God is with us. And he's saying that to the Israelites who have been defeated in many ways, who have been deported, and yet now they hear this same promise that they can endure. Now keep in mind that this is not a promise of comfort and ease, something that many believers still mistakenly buy into. The Bible is very clear about the fact that believers will have to endure suffering. Jesus did. And we who claim to follow him are told that if they persecuted him, they're going to persecute you. If he had to suffer in order to be glorified, then we're going to suffer in order to be glorified. But we do not face these things alone, for we are never truly alone. Now, I know we feel alone sometimes, and certainly the pandemic has greatly exaggerated this especially for those who are shut up in their homes or shut up in some care facility. And certainly at such times, they are very trying and very lonely, and we feel alone, but ultimately we need to be reminded that the believer is never alone, for God's presence is always with us. And so in verse 5, we see the same thing again, and here we see the second, fear not. There is no reason for us to fear because God is with us. 
Again, we have a hard time believing this, especially during difficult days, because we are used to people leaving us during tough times. I mean, we even have a name for it, fair weather friends. Those are friends who leave us during difficult times. They're with us in the good times, but they leave us during the difficult times. Or we use the phrase fair weather fans. That is a fan of a sports team that follows them and cheers them on when they're having good years and winning years, but abandon them for somebody else during the difficult years. Or maybe we've been through a painful divorce. Our spouse has left when things got difficult. And so that's the norm in much of society. It's all too common in our human relationships with one another, but it is not how God relates to us. Repeatedly, we are told, both here in this text and elsewhere, that God is always with us and he will never under any circumstances leave us. And the fact that you have him should be a constant part of your identity. Israel could look back literally on some of this. The crossing of the Red Sea, they crossed on dry ground. The crossing of the Jordan River, examples of how God had been with them. They could think about Daniel's three friends being cast into the fire. And the fire did not burn them. In fact, the Bible tells us they didn't even smell like fire, and they weren't alone. There was one like the Son of God with them. And by the way, many of you know that Old Testament story in the book of Daniel. It's a favorite of Sunday school classes. But it occurred during this time period that we're talking about. Daniel and his three friends had been part of the the ones who had been deported to Babylon. And so that episode in the fiery furnace took place at this very same time that Isaiah is prophesying about. All right, so who is, who is this God who is always with us? That's another part of our spiritual identity. You have, number five, you have a Savior. We see this pictured in verse two, though again, it's not a promise that we'll always be healthy or never hurt. So this refers to temporal things in part or things of the world. God will not only always be with us, but he will deliver us from such things eventually. Now, again, sometimes we understand that his deliverance from temporal pain and suffering means that he takes us through death into eternity. We have to admit that if we live long enough, some illness or some disease is going to come for us all. But that does not mean that God has not delivered. So when I say Savior, it can mean in a worldly sense, I don't mean that badly, but in a temporal sense, saving us through our trials and difficulties as he had done for Israel through Egypt and they will do again through Babylon. But we tend to hear that word Savior in a spiritual thing or a spiritual side of things, and this is certainly included in this text as well. In verse 3, we find the idea clearly stated. God says, I am your Savior. It is he who has saved us from our sins and not we ourselves. As Christians, we profess that our greatest need is to be saved from sin because we cannot save ourselves. Therefore, God's greatest blessings to us is calling us to himself and saving us, one that should be at the very heart of our identity. Now, you've been on Twitter before, and you you see the headlines up on Twitter where someone tries to describe who they are. And so they usually say, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a pastor, or whatever. And now it's common to, to mark their sexual orientation there as well. And so there's all kinds of headings up there trying to describe who it is they are, who what is their identity. 
But ultimately, our identity is not primarily wrapped up in our relationships or our career or anything else. Our identity is who we are in Christ and the Holy One of Israel, as Isaiah likes to call him, is our Savior and Lord. You say, well, why would he do all of that? I mean, why would he call me as a sinner to himself Why would he save me from my sins, the very sins I've committed against him? Well, the sixth aspect of your identity tells us the motive behind all of this. It's very simple. You are loved. Look at verse 4. The first half of verse 4 ought to be a half of a verse that all of us memorize. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I mean, what a great half of a verse to memorize so that we can always remind ourselves. God says very clearly, you are precious in his eyes. You are honored, and I love you. Now, if I was a better planner in my sermon prep, this would have been our text for two weeks ago on Valentine's Day. Because it would have certainly been a great verse for Valentine's Day, that day when we are forced, uh, I don't mean forced, I mean when we have the opportunity to express our love to others. But this is something that we really ought to talk about not just on Valentine's Day, but throughout the years. This is a fundamental human desire to love and to be loved. And not just by someone who we hardly know, someone who easily throws out the phrase, I love you, and yet we know, well, they don't really know me, so how can they say that? Or certainly not just the infatuation that we find in teenagers who are so fond of falling in and out of love so frequently that it makes our heads spin. I mean, we want someone who knows us intimately, all our faults, all our failures, and yet loves us in spite of all of that. And that is exactly what we have in God, who does know us intimately, and yet he can't say it any plainer here, I love you. These three words that many people find hard to say, those same three words that many people long to hear, so much better than a like on social media or a retweet or a heart emoji, I mean, this is God looking at you and saying, I am who I am. I've done for you what I've done for you all because I love you. That is your identity. You are loved by God. Now, hang with me. We've got two more. I'm confident this is the longest outline that I've ever used, eight points. But we're still going to get out of here on time. In verses 5 and 6, you have a home. Just like love, everyone wants a home, a place where they can feel safe and secure and relaxed. Now here, of course, Isaiah is talking about an eternal home. There is some debate here historically about what he's referring to. Is he talking about the Israelites coming back from captivity in Babylon, which has been promised after 70 years and returning to Jerusalem? That's a possibility, but the terminology here seems too broad for that. Because the terminology is universal in scope, north, south, east, and west. If they're just coming back from Babylon, that's just coming from the east. So secondly, he could be talking talking about the, the greater dispersion that took place in A.D. 70 when the temple was once again destroyed, or in A.D. 35, and a bringing back that wasn't even started till the 21st century, or the 20th century, I should say, after World War II, when they began to come back to Jerusalem. 
Or he could be talking still about a yet future event when God calls all of his people to be gathered back. Or it could be a little bit of all three of these things. We do know that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 that he is going to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So regardless of exactly what Isaiah is referring to, we do know that one day God will gather all believers from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue to dwell with him forever in a place that he has promised that he is even now preparing for us. So you have a home. That does not speak about the address at which you receive your mail. It speaks about your eternal home with God, which of course is a place of rest and safety and security. And lastly, the final thing we see here about our spiritual identity, you give glory. God created you in his image and recreated you to be conformed to the image of Christ so that you and I would glorify him. We are to be living advertisements for how good God is to his people. And that's why the famous confession of faith begins with the question, what is the chief end of man? That is, what is the ultimate purpose? What is the reason for which you and I have been born? Is it so that we can make money and leave a legacy of our accomplishments? Is it so that we can change the world and make it a better place after we're gone? Is it so that we can be comfortable and secure for my short time here on this planet? No, the answer, what is the chief end of man? Is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why you were created. And that's what you live and exist for. That is who you are. That is your identity. Your life brings glory to God because it testifies of his goodness and grace in saving you. So all of that, all eight of those points are true of you as a believer. You are not the sum total of your failures. You are not the sum total of your successes. You are not who you think you are, and you are not what others say you are. You are who God says you are. He is your creator and redeemer. Therefore, he gets to define who you are. So now the question is this. Have you become the victim of identity theft? Have you allowed circumstances or people, perhaps even your own mind, to make you something other than what God says you are? If so, you need to readjust your thinking and remember your identity. Not on the basis of what you want to be, nor am I talking about remaking yourself into something you're not online. I'm talking about believing what God says about you, who you are, and then living in light of your identity. Let me pray. Father, we thank you this morning for reminding us of who we are in you. For these sweet words that Isaiah brings to our minds. I, I pray that we would be reminded that we are precious in your eyes. We are honored, and yes, Lord, you do love us. I know we don't deserve that, and I know we certainly don't feel like that at times. But that is who we are. And I pray that we would be reminded of our identity in you. And we would not fall prey to the false identities that are either common in our society or common in our own minds. Is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.